Amen. It is well with my soul. So, let me ask you men a question. This is a question for the men in this room. Let me preface this question by saying, okay, here I am, I'm about 5'8", 5'9", I weigh about 165 pounds. So, by a show of hands, how many of you men think you can beat me up? Raise your hand. Okay, hold your hands up. Keep your hands up. This is a sincere, honest question. Keep your hands up. <laughs> That's all right. Keep, keep your hands up. So, Henry, you think you can beat me up? I think I could give you a run for your money. All right. Okay. Lance, you don't think you can beat me up? I think you might could. I, I, I wouldn't mess with you. Anybody else? Who thinks they can beat me up? Raise your hand. All right, Jason, I, th- I think that'd probably be a good fight. Gloria, you think you could beat me up, really? Cassandra, all right, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. You know what? I'm okay if you think you can beat me up. I'm all right with that, even though some ladies did raise their hand in the auditorium. I'm okay with that. I'm okay to be underestimated. But what I'm not okay with is to underestimate the power and the glory of Jesus Christ. Let me read this verse to you. This is a quote from Jesus himself. And here's what Jesus said. This is in the book of Revelation. And we read, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And you and I can't say that. All we can say is I'm a little bleep. I'm a little speck on the timeline of human history. But Jesus said, I am the first and the last. And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Now we can say, I have the keys to my house, I have the keys to my car, I have the keys to my apartment, and I'm just a little blip on human history, but Jesus said, I am the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. I was alive, I died, I rose again, and I have the keys of life and death. That's the God that we serve. That's the Jesus that we worship. Let's praise Jesus with our hands. He is glorious. He is our King. But who do you say He is? And that's what we're talking about this morning. Let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that nobody would leave the same. As Saul of Tarsus encountered you on the road to Damascus, and he had to wrestle with this question, who is Jesus? As you ask Peter directly, so who do you say that I am? You are asking every person in this room, so who do you say that I am? As Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You are the Lord. You are the Savior. You are the risen one. You are the King of kings. You are the creator of the universe. But I pray that every person here would be confronted with that question. And in Jesus' name, I pray that their lives would never be the same. Amen. Amen. So, there's a story about a captain of a U.S. Navy aircraft carrier. This is the largest warship in history. It's a thousand feet long. That's three football fields. It weighs 100,000 tons. It has, it has the capacity to destroy. And it, it can go, you know, 50 knots cutting through the ocean. 
And there's a story that one night, uh, the captain of this aircraft, naval aircraft carrier, sees what he thinks is an oncoming light, and he gets on his radio and he says, alter your course. And the voice of that light responds, no sir, you alter your course. And so the captain said, this is a captain of the United States Navy aircraft carrier. Alter your course. And the voice replied, this is a lighthouse. You alter your course. (laughs) It's humbling, isn't it? And so with all that power and with all that confidence, that captain had to make a decision to go this way or that way. And like I said, you and I, we're just a glimpse on this timeline of human history. Like the grass, the Bible says, we spring up for a season, and then in a short spring season, we fade away. That's our lives. And yet, there is a light that towers over human history, and we try to define that light and say who he is, and Jesus says, nope, I'm on the rock of the ages, I'm the light of the world, you alter your course, you go this way or that way, and make a decision based upon who you say that I am. Jesus stepped into time and he split it in half, B.C. and A.D., because his whole essence forced people to make a decision based upon who he is. And people either loved him or they hated him. They were for him or they were against him. They followed him or they forsook him. They professed him or they denied him. But nobody could remain indifferent. Nobody could remain neutral. Jesus didn't allow it to be so. In fact, in the final analysis, scriptures tell us that all of human history will be separated this way or that way from the rock of the ages, the light of the world. And they will be separated based upon sheep or goat, the wheat or tares, those who accepted him and those who rejected him. There was a governor named Pontius Pilate. And uh, history speaks of him, secular history speaks of him. He was a Roman governor over the occupied uh, vicinity of Palestine or Jerusalem or Judea. And he was a politician toward the core, to the core. He was, he, he was a fence straddler and he swayed to popular opinion. And he was going to make whatever decision that he felt would best serve his interests. And through the act of God's sovereign hand, Jesus was standing in front of him. And Pontius Pilate told Jesus, you do realize I have the power to kill you or set you free. And Jesus responded, you have no power over me unless it were given to you from above. It was a, it was a sovereign orchestration because Jesus came to die on the cross and Pontius Pilate was a part in that. And so Pontius Pilate was trying to make the decision, will he exonerate or execute? Will he pardon or will he crucify Jesus. And he asks the crowd in Matthew chapter 27 verse 22, what shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? And this is the question of the ages. What shall I do with Jesus? And this is the question that you're faced with, that you're forced to answer today. It's a personal question. It doesn't matter if your dad or your granddad was a preacher. It doesn't matter if your mother prays for you every day. This is a personal question that only you can make for yourself. And it's a pressing question. It's a question that will not leave you alone. It's a question that will haunt you. It's a question that you cannot escape from. 
And it's a pertinent question. It is more pertinent than where you'll go to school, than what you'll study, than who you'll marry. This is the most important question you could ever be confronted with. It doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. You must wrestle with this question and you must answer, what shall I do with Jesus? Joshua again, he concluded, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But you have to choose for yourself. And I want to give you three reasons. These are just the first of, of, of many reasons as we begin this Christmas series called Case for the Messiah. And if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I pray that it builds your faith. And if you're, if you're an agnostic, I pray that it causes you to be more open-minded. And I ask you to consider the fact that perhaps you are the narrow-minded one. And I say that in humility. Uh, consider the fact that perhaps you are the narrow-minded one. And perhaps you should revisit this question. Who is the person of Jesus who split time in half B.C. and A.D.? And so this is just the first of three statements that we're going to be making throughout this series that I pray will deepen your faith or will challenge your already pre-existing convictions. Here's the first statement. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And that means He's the Christ. He's the Savior. Because Jesus fulfilled biblical prophecy. Now, let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 2. In fact, the nativity story, and that's the Christmas story, it is, it is filled with biblical prophecy. All throughout the scriptures, we see that the little infant Jesus fulfilled prophecies that were written about him centuries before. Let's read about it. We'll begin in Matthew chapter 2. Where is he, the wise men, who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. When Herod, and incidentally, how did they know that this star was uh, directing them to the Messiah? How did they know that the time of Messiah was at hand? Many prophecies led scholars of scripture and scholars of ancient biblical prophecies to this exact vicinity. In fact, we're not going to go into it, but just let me touch on it. And I encourage you to go research it yourself, Google it, go buy some commentaries, get three commentaries, and study a prophecy that's become known as the 70-week prophecy. It's, it's in the Bible, the, the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, I believe it is. These three or four verses right there, it's called the Daniel 70-week prophecy, prophesies all of human history to the birth of the Messiah, and it takes his death up to, you can like put it on a calendar, calculate the days using the Jewish 360-day calendar, and it takes the death of Christ into the spring of 32 AD, I mean to the day of when Christ was crucified historically, and that was written about 600 BC, and it will put goosebumps on the back of your neck. There are countless prophecies like that from Scripture in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. So the wise men knew, well, this is the time of the Messiah. And then when King Herod heard this, he was troubled, he felt threatened, and all Jerusalem with him. They were afraid that they were going to stir uh, Rome to overtake Jerusalem if there was a supposed king that was born, which in fact did happen. Those fears were very valid. Rome was very powerful. And in fact, about 30 years after the time of Christ, in 70 AD, a group of zealots from Galilee did rise up and try to overthrow the Roman Empire, try to kick Rome out of the Palestinian era, and it resulted area, and it resulted in a Roman backlash that Israel did not recover from for about 2,000 years. It was brutal. Flavius Josephus writes about it. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. A king? Well, this 
incite Rome, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what, watch this, was written about by the prophets. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, from the prophet Jeremiah. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time that the star appeared. And if you continue reading in Matthew chapter 2, you see many messianic prophecies about Jesus that Jesus fulfilled. He was born in Bethlehem, and yet he was called out of Egypt, and yet he was raised in Nazareth. Why did God put so many messianic prophecies about Jesus? Let me give you a word picture to explain that. Imagine that you have a long-lost relative that you've never met. And his his name is, well, you don't know his name. You just know he's a long-lost relative that you never met. And so you have a family member that says, he's coming to the airport. Would you go pick him up? He wants to spend Christmas with you. And you say, okay, great. And you hang up the phone. And then you start thinking about it. But you know what? I don't know what airport he's coming in. It could be DFW. It could be Lovefield. It could be any other airport. It could be an airport in San Antonio. I have no idea what airport he's coming into. On top of that, I have no idea how old he is. I have no idea what he looks like. I have no idea what his name is. In fact, I don't even know that he's coming this Christmas. Maybe they're talking about next Christmas. And so what do you do? Well, you choose a day. Okay, heck, Wednesday. I'll go to the airport. And so you go to the airport on Wednesday, and you just start asking people, are you here to spend Christmas with me? Are you here to spend Christmas with me? What are the chances that you're going to get the right person? And furthermore, what are the chances that you're going to be deceived by an imposter? Pretty high, aren't they? But what if your instructions were this specific from a family member? Your long-lost relative is coming in. His name? Uncle Homar. You can't miss him. He's about 80 years old, and he wears his Uncle Sam hat everywhere he goes, and he's always playing the harmonica, and he's always playing bagpipes, and he's going to have a a necklace around his neck, and there's going to be a sign that says, Uncle Homar, I want to speak Christmas, and he's going to be coming in at Wednesday at 3 p.m., DFW, American Airlines, flight 737, so forth. So, 3 p.m., you're waiting at the airport, out comes this 80-year-old man, long white beard, the hat, bagpipes, everything like that, the sign, Uncle Homar... Flight 737, you walk up and you say, are you Uncle Homer? And he says, yes. Are you pretty certain that that's your uncle? Pretty certain, aren't you? And in the same way, God said, there's going to be a Messiah. If you place your faith in him, your sins will be forgiven. You will be heaven bound. But he didn't leave it to chance. He gave us so many specifics of what to look for in this Messiah that when Jesus was born, it was absolutely irrefutable. So that anybody who knew the scriptures placed their faith in Christ. In fact, let's just take a look at some of these scriptures, some of these prophecies that pointed to Jesus so that we know that Jesus is a fulfillment of the prophecy. He's wearing the name tag, I am Messiah, put your faith in me for eternal life. It was prophesied in Genesis that the Messiah would be born of a woman, this God-man fulfilled in Matthew. Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, prophesied in Micah, and we read about it just now. The Messiah would be born of a virgin, and prophesied in Isaiah, and we read about it in the the Gospels, and it goes on and on and on. I'm not going to read all of these prophecies. In fact, there's 44 listed here, and that's not even close to all of the messianic prophecies that Christ fulfilled. You can read Psalm chapter 22, and that one chapter alone will give you the goosebumps when you read about all of these messianic prophecies that the person of Jesus fulfilled. Things like, my hands and feet are pierced. What is this? 
The crucifix position. All my bones are out of joint. What is this, the crucifix position? Interestingly, about 700 years before the Roman form of execution through crucifixion was ever invented. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Do you remember Jesus on the cross said, I thirst? They, they hurl insults at me. They divide my, my, my garments and cast lots for my clothing. My heart melts away within me like wax. Do you remember when the soldiers stabbed Jesus? Blood and water flowed. That's a medical condition of when your heart ruptures and it causes the blood and the water in your system to intermingle. Blood and water flowed. Christ died of a ruptured heart. Hundreds of prophecies fulfilled in the person of Christ. Statisticians have actually crunched the numbers and said that it's for one person to accidentally fulfill just seven of the prophecies that Christ fulfilled, in which he fulfilled hundreds of them. The likelihood of that is one in ten to the 17th power. And it is as, as unlikely as filling the entire state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep, taking one silver dollar, putting a black dot on it, getting in an airplane, randomly parachuting somewhere in the whole state of Texas, and the first coin that you pick up having that black dot on it. One of the reasons that my faith has deepened was because God didn't leave it to chance. He didn't want us to be faked by an imposter, and he wanted us to place our faith in his son. So he made it clear that Jesus is who he says that he is. Second, Jesus exuded supernatural authority. And just the mere fact that Jesus stepped into time and split it in half from B.C. to A.D., indicates that Christ has a supernatural authority about himself. Let's continue to read about it. In those days, Caesar Augustus Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, and everyone went to their own town to register. And so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house of the line of David, which is another messianic prophecy. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in where? A manger? Interesting, isn't it? Every single thing, every detail about Jesus was sovereign and the fulfillment of Scripture. Nothing was accidental, nothing was coincidental, nothing was chance, and nothing was inconsequential. And we can just gloss right over that and say, he was born in a manger, and say, okay, well, God, I guess, wanted that because he liked the nativity stories. That's how he wanted it to unfold in churches, you know, today. He, He liked the idea of the nativity scene. It's much, much deeper than that. You realize for hundreds of years before Christ was ever born, as a foreshadowing of Jesus, as a prophecy of Jesus, as a way that people could place their faith in Christ to be made right with God before Christ was ever born. There would be these animal sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. They would take sheep and they would take goats and they would take bulls and they would sacrifice them. It never removed anybody's sins. It just covered their sins until the actual Lamb of God, the actual scapegoat Jesus Christ was born In a hospital? In a house? No. Where? In a manger. Why? Because Jesus was born specifically to be the Lamb of God. The fulfillment of all of these sacrificial animals centuries before Him. The mere fact that He was born in a manger is another fulfillment of prophecy. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest 
heavens, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. What a beautiful Christmas story. What a beautiful incarnation. Jesus exuded so much supernatural authority that the impact that his life has made is timeless. And I know that some people say, you know what? I just, I just don't even think that Jesus is the Messiah. I don't think Jesus is God. And as far as that goes, I don't even think that he's an actual historical person. I think he's a myth. Well, you know what? If Jesus were an actual historical person, wouldn't you think that there would be uh, co- corroborating historical, secular historical evidence corroborating the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Yeah, you would think that. And that's why that there is. In fact, I brought a couple of history books with me. And both of these guys lived in the same century as Jesus, the first century. And these are Roman historians. These guys aren't even uh, Jewish rabbis. These guys are secular Roman historians. These guys were pagans. And this is uh, Tacitus, Publius Cornelius Tacitus. And he wrote, and in fact, he's reputed for writing only things that are credible, that have been well documented. And he writes, consequently, and I'm just picking up in a context, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened, this is the Roman persecution of Nero, by Nero on the Christian church, Roman fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our um, governors, Pontius Pilate. And the most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, Christianity, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful for every part of the world find their center and become popular. And it goes on. And then Flavius Josephus was Jewish, but he actually worked for Rome. And a lot of Jews don't like Josephus because he actually traveled with the Romans when in 70 AD during the siege of Jerusalem, when Rome wiped out uh, Judea and Jerusalem. And they raved the city to the ground and killed tens, hundreds of thousands of Jews, crucified them, he says, so that as, as far as the eye could see, the, there were crosses with people who were crucified. Well, Josephus writes, who incidentally, again, he was Jewish, but he worked for Rome, and he was not a Christian. And he writes a few different places about Jesus, but in one place in particular, he wrote, Now there was about this time Jesus, and this time it's a really interesting context uh, surrounding Pontius Pilate and some really horrible, brutal things that he did politically. And then he writes, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with, with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day. And the divine prophets had foretold these and tens of thousands of other wonderful things concerning him, and the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct to this day. Whatever you might think about Jesus... The thought process that he's simply a non-historical myth is not an option afforded to you. And so he was a true historical person. Now let's just think about this person that impacted 
time. He was born in a place when people uh, never even thought of Bethlehem. And Nazareth, I think it had a population of just a few hundred people. And when they heard Jesus was from Nazareth, that he was raised in, they said, Nazareth, what good can come from Nazareth? He didn't have a formal education. He never held a political office. He never left a geographical area larger than the size of America's smallest state, Rhode Island. He never held a religious office. When he was living here on this earth, he never wrote a book. He was poor. When he died, he didn't even have an article of clothing to his name. And all of his followers forsook. And yet, this young carpenter from Nazareth who died at the age of 33 has transformed history more powerfully than any armies that have ever marched, than any kings that have ever reigned, than any congress or governments that have ever sat. His life has influenced more songs, more poems, more books, more hospitals, more nonprofit organizations, more food and benevolence and shelter ministries than any other person in history. His impact is timeless And then his claims were audacious. Does anybody know what the personal name of God is? I am. In fact, this name was given to Moses by God. It's in the book of Exodus. And it was such a holy moment. It was such an awe-inspiring moment. God told Moses, my name, I am. Which is amazing. Because God is the only one who can make a complete sentence with those two words. I am. If I say, I am, and you say, you are what? And I say, well, I am Shane. You know, I'm the pastor here at Hope Works. And you would say, yes, you are. But you had to qualify that. Kendall says, I am. I say, you are what? And he says, well, I am a great man of God, and I'm a great dad. And I'd say, yes, you are. But you had to qualify that statement. None of us here can make a complete sentence with these two words, I am, but God. He says, I am. And we say, you are what? And he says, I am anything that you need. I am your provider, I am your sustainer, I am your healer, I am your forgiver, I am your creator, I am your redeemer, I am your restorer, I am your life. Well, there is a certain time in the ministry of Jesus, is in John chapter 8, and they're talking about Father Abraham, and, and Jesus is talking about his father, and they're really irritated. The Pharisees are irritated because he seems to allude to the fact that the father is God, and that's his father, and the Pharisees and Jesus are going back and forth, and they th- you know, they're, they're saying, you really think that you're greater than our father Abraham? And he says, you know what, before Abraham lived... I am. And they got so infuriated by him. That was so bold. That was so audacious that Jesus said, I am. And he made many, many I am statements. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. And so we can't deny the fact that Jesus was an historical figure. It is what it is. But we also can't dismiss him and write him off as simply a good man or a moral teacher or a religious leader. Because his claims were so audacious, he said, I am. They didn't kill Jesus because he walked around acting like Mother Teresa, although Mother Teresa acted a lot like him. But they didn't kill Jesus because he fed the poor and he healed the sick. They killed Jesus because of what he said. And he said, I am. 
That was a name so holy, so awe-inspiring, so powerful, so pure that the Jew in that culture, in that day and age, would not even enunciate it. They wouldn't even read it. When they wrote it, they didn't include all the vows. They wouldn't even enunciate it. And Jesus walked through saying, I am. He was either absolutely out of his mind, or he was a deceiver and, and egocentric, or he was who he said that he was. And he didn't say, I'm just a good man. He said, I am. And specifically, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus fulfilled biblical prophecy. Jesus exuded supernatural authority. His impact is timeless. His claims are audacious. And thirdly, Jesus has transformed me personally. You cannot confront, you be confronted by Jesus without it changing you. Your heart is either going to grow more hardened, or your heart is going to grow more softened as you invite him in and, and ask him to begin leading your life. Jesus has transformed me personally. Watch how he transformed the shepherds. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see the things that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. They became missionaries. They became evangelists, simply telling people what they saw about Jesus. And it amazed people. But Mary, she just treasured these things up in her heart. But the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and that they had seen. Anybody whose life has encountered Christ's life has to make a decision. Go this way or go that way. But you cannot remain indifferent about the person of Jesus. You have to accept him or you have to reject him. Jesus said, if you're not with me, you're against me. It's a decision that all of us have to grapple with, and it's a decision that all of us have to make. Jesus said, I'd rather, when it comes to the matters of myself, I'd rather you be hot, or I'd rather you be cold. But I don't want you to be lukewarm, or I'll spew you out of my mouth. We all have to make a decision. And Christ has impacted me personally, and He's impacted so many of you during worship. I saw Cassandra up here leading worship, and tears coming down her cheeks, and I thought, you know, praise God, this is how the world is going to be transformed. Through one soul at a time, through one heart at a time, as people realize that Jesus loves them and the tears stream down their cheek as a testimony that Christ has touched their life and they've received His unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. I remember a, a good friend of mine, Brad Wright, he, when he came to Christ, we ran into each other at our 10-year high school reunion and, and he came to Christ shortly after and uh, he got married shortly after and... You know, he's, he told me once, I don't know if you remember this, Brad, but he said, you know, every time I give something up for Jesus, it's like I have more and more joy in my heart. Oh, and I know what that is. The more I seek him, the more I read his word, the more I walk after him, and the more I walk like him, the more peace I have in my mind, the more strength and joy and boldness and authority I have in my spirit. The less I seek him, the less I walk after him, the more I walk into the world, uh, that peace is ruptured and I have, I have despair and fear. Christ changes our life. When he's the center, he transforms us. 
There was a time that Jesus was in a storm and he said, peace, be still. And the storms were calmed. And this is what he does. He steps into our life and he calms the storms. There was an event, this was before we started Hope Works, it was a Friday night outreach, we were playing sand volleyball, Katina was there this night, and we, we were getting rained out, I don't know if anybody else was there, but we were getting rained out, and people were, we were going to share the gospel, and people were like, Shane, just pray that the rain stops. Now we're all huddled under this pavilion, and the wind is blowing, paper plates are flying off, metal barrels are blowing across the beach, and, and I'm mad at God. Because I'm thinking, we prayed about this night. We needed a momentum boost. And these people are here to hear about you as if I care more about their souls than God does. And somebody, he was a new Christian. He had the gift of faith. He was the kind of guy, he just prayed and stuff happened. It was really kind of just uh, unnerving a little bit, his gift. And, but he was a brand new Christian. And he's a big guy. We called him Big D. And he said, let's just pray that the rain stops. And everybody looks at me. Like that was a good idea or something. And I thought, shoot. He has no idea the situation he just put me in. Because if I say, no, God doesn't answer stuff like that anymore. How hypocritical would it be? That would not be a good testimony for our evangelism night. And if I said, okay, yeah, let's pray that the rain stops and the rain doesn't stop. How ridiculous am I going to look? And I just thought, shoot, Don. And I thought, maybe, maybe nobody heard it. And he said it again. Let's pray that the rain stops. And everybody looks at me again like that's a good idea. So I had no choice. And I said, okay, let's pray. And so Don, Big D, and Jason, they got on either side of me, and they put their arm around me, and they said, you pray, Shane, we'll agree. (laughs) I remember the prayer in verbatim. I'll never forget it. It's pouring down rain. And I said, God, all these people are here to hear the gospel, and this rain is hindering things. And we ask it not five, not three, not two minutes from now, but right now, stop the rain. And the rain immediately stopped. And it was perfectly calm. And we, I, we, we didn't break the prayer circle. We were just praising Jesus. And I had goosebumps. And in my mind, I was thinking, I've read about stuff like this, but I'm actually standing <laughs> in the middle of one. And I was just praying, praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And we said amen. And we turned around. And everybody's looking at me like I'm Moses or something like that. <laughs> and, I, and I literally thought, I thought... Sermon intros don't get any better than this right here. (laughs) So I said, the same Jesus who walked on water 2,000 years ago and calmed the storms is obviously still alive and still calming storms. And he wants to enter your heart and calm the storms, but you have to invite him in and commit your life to him right now. You know, I also read about another... Another pastor, a pastor of a big church, Tony Evans, he was at this big crusade, this outdoor deal, and it was a, uh, he, the, the rain was going to hinder things, and, and the storms were coming in, and this lady walked up with boldness and grabbed the microphone and prayed that the rain stopped. Tony Evans said this. He said that the, the clouds, he said, in that open, that, that, that open air stadium, he saw the, the storm come in, split around the stadium, the clouds split around the stadium and closed on the other side of the stadium. He said it was just miraculous. I was recently reading a book by, by a guy named Louis Giglio. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he was talking about this passion conference that he did north of here, uh, uh, just a couple of hours, like around Denton. But I was actually at this one. It was in 2003. There was about 25,000 people there, big names, John Piper, Louis Giglio, uh, uh, Kirk Cameron, Chris Tomlin, Toby Mack. I mean, it was a big, 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 uh, Beth Moore. But the night before, 
actually like two or three nights before, days before, nonstop pounding, I mean rain, like it felt like a hurricane kind of stuff. But that's before the days of social media, so they didn't know if they were going to cancel it, call it off, what. And so they were just all in these tents. All these, all the people that I just mentioned were in a tent the night before of this conference, and they were praying, and as they were praying that the rain would stop, the rain didn't stop, but as they were praying, a bolt of lightning just slammed the ground about a hundred years, a hundred yards away from them. He said that they all scattered and ran. He said that he was one of them. But they kept rain, praying, and the rain finally stop but they were expecting 25,000 people on all these acres of farmland to come and so when the rain finally did stop I mean hours before everybody was supposed to be there he said the mud was the kind of mud where you walked and your foot sank deep into the mud so that your next step you would lose your shoe back in the mud he said God didn't stop the rain he said but the real miracle by the time the 25,000 students descended upon that farmland the ground was hard as a rock that was the miracle and I just say that to say those are just those are just three examples that in our limited time I just rattled off and we didn't even go into the healings and the provisions that God is still affecting people's lives he's still impacting people's lives he said that he is who he is and I've experienced it and I know it's true And this is the major difference between Jesus and everybody else who said they were something or who people think that they were something. Now you guys listen closely. I don't want you to miss this. This is the major difference between Jesus and everybody else because let me debunk this myth. All religions are not the same. They are not. You see, Islam says that Jesus was simply a prophet less than Muhammad. You think Jesus would agree with that? No. Jesus said, I am. He is God. Jehovah's Witness would say he's a God, kind of like we can be a God like Jesus and be his brother kind of thing. And Jesus says, no, I am the God, capital G, God. And you can be my child and and you can be my co-heir as a matter of grace, but he is God. He is the Messiah. There are major differences. And all religions are not going to the same place. For example, if, if I said, here we are, and I-35 is right here. In order to get to Dallas, just get on I-35 and keep going south until you hit the coast. Now, somebody else could come along and they say, well, okay, here we are, and we're right here, 35 is right there. You've got to take 35 to 20 or 30 or 120, you know, just start going east and then you'll hit Dallas. Now, one person says one thing and another person says another thing. It is not politically correct and it is not compassionate to say that we are all right so that we don't hurt one another's feelings. You see, reality is one of us is right and one of us is wrong. And that's just simple, rational truth. Or perhaps we're both wrong, but we can't both be right and in the way Jesus said I am the way the truth the life no man comes to the father but by me and other religious leaders say that they are a way and a path they cannot both be right they can both be wrong or one of them is wrong and one of them is right but they can't both be right 
We either have to believe that Jesus is who he said he was, or he is a liar and he's wrong. But because he rose from the grave, and there's enough evidence to prove that in a modern day court of law, and because he has impacted my life, I've placed my faith in Christ. See, Christianity is not a mutual fund. Faith in Christ is not a mutual fund. If you know anything about investing, this is a mutual fund mentality. You invest a little here, you invest a little there, you invest a little there, and you invest a little there. So that if this is going down, then this will be going up. Or if this goes down, well then this will be going up. It's a conservative, safe way to invest. Put a little stock in everything. Christ is more like a hedge fund. He says all in nothing else. You have to trust me exclusively. Put all of your eggs in one basket. And this is the difference between Jesus and every other religion. Think of it like a country club. Every other religion says this. Come on into the country club. You're welcome. But here's a little checklist that you've got to accomplish in order to get in. And then eat from the banquet table. Jesus says this. Here's the country club. Um, Here's the banqueting table. Blessings, eternal life, relationship with God, peace and joy. But I've already paid the price for you. And so the gates are wide open. Come on in. And he paid the price with his own blood when he died on the cross. And so in order to get in, you have to be morally bankrupt. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that ticked off the Pharisees because they were rich in spirit. And they had a resume of good works and, and moral achievements. And they set the bar of spirituality and religiosity so high that your average person said, what's the use of even trying? Nobody could ever jump that hoop. And Jesus said, it's the morally bankrupt that are invited into the kingdom of heaven. Because you can't place any confidence in yourself. You can only place confidence in what I've accomplished for you on the cross. And if you do that, the gates of heaven are wide open. And I will clothe you in my righteousness. You will be my friend. You will be heaven bound. You will have my spirit to carry you through heaven. And he'll continue to show himself not only real, because there gets to a point where whether or not Jesus was historical, or whether or not God is real, and whether or not God is Jesus and whether or not that's all real, you get to a point in your relationship with God where really that's kid stuff. That's so elementary. And the more you walk with God, then the more you realize His faithfulness is deeper than you ever imagined. His love and His grace and His mercy are deeper than you ever imagined. His goodness is deeper than you ever imagined. His nearness, His proximity to you is, is sweeter and dearer and more important than you ever imagined. And you realize that he didn't purchase for your salvation with his blood and fling the doors of heaven wide open so that you could check off a bunch of to-do lists in some religious network. How shallow is that? How superficial is that? But it's all about a relationship. He loves you. God is love. And he loves you and he wants to do life with you. And that's the gospel. Would you stand with me? With your heads bowed, I just want to ask you guys, with your heads bowed, you know, I asked you to raise your hand if you thought you could beat me up, and more hands than I had hoped actually went up on that one, but <laughs> with your heads bowed, if, if you would raise your hands, if you, if you know that you've received the free gift of eternal life, and you've 
trusted Jesus Christ as your Messiah. Okay, thank you, thank you. You can put your hands down. And now I would just like to pray with you if, if you're still grappling through this, or maybe even if this morning you would like to, right from where you're seated, I'd lead everybody in a prayer to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. I'd just like to lead you in a prayer. Would you raise your hand up? Okay, okay. God bless you guys. God bless you. Let me show you something. If you raise your hand, would you look at me for a moment? In fact, everybody, if y'all would just look up here for a second. The just shall live by going to church every Sunday. No. The just shall live by having a perfectly clean track record. No. The just shall live by faith. Yes, but faith in what? Faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. What does the word Messiah mean? It means Savior. He saves you from your sins. He saves you from your past. You don't have to have a clean track record. You just have to be morally impoverished, morally bankrupt enough to realize that you're a sinner who needs a Savior. And then humble enough to call out to Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. Let me just repeat that. You don't have to have a long spiritual religious resume. That's not being poor in spirit. That's being pharisaical. That's like all the other religions in the world. You have to be morally impoverished enough, morally bankrupt enough to realize that you're a sinner that needs a Savior and humble enough to call out to Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. And I would like to lead you in a prayer. This is the greatest moment in your life. You know what's so beautiful about it? God is so big and His love is so personal. When you receive to Christ right now, all of heaven is going to erupt in celebration and Jesus is going to be leading the celebration. He rejoices. You matter to Him. Your life matters so much to Him. He wants to do life with you. And watch this in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. And it says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we read again in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Oftentimes, just like to interject my name in there to lead into my prayer time or my worship time. If Shane calls on the name of the Lord, Shane will be saved. And Shane has called on the name of the Lord, so Shane is saved. Not because of anything I've done, but again, because of what he's done. And I am morally bankrupt, spiritually impoverished to the core. But I have a Savior, and His name is Jesus. And He paid for my sins on the cross. And when I called upon Him, He came into my heart through the Holy Spirit. And He gave me not only the forgiveness of sins, not only eternal life, but He gave me His own righteousness. And He made me His friend. And He helps me pray. And the thing about the beach, that was just one of many countless experiences with God. Where He doesn't prove to me He's real again. That's kid stuff. Where He just begins deepening my awareness of how good He is, how faithful He is, how wonderful He is, how ever-present He is, how much He just wants a relationship with us. So all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And let's all pray in an audible voice to encourage the person next to you, and let's bow our heads and pray audibly, pray boldly. God, I know that I have sinned. I am the chief of sinners. I am poor in spirit. 
then thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for paying for my sins. I believe, Jesus, that you are Messiah, that you are my Savior. Come into my heart and begin leading my life. Jesus, be my Lord and Savior. Now help me to grow in this relationship with you. You know what I love about this relationship with Jesus? All of the good works that we do, all of the songs that we sing, all of the prayers that we pray, it's not to be saved. It's because we are saved. Our worship is, 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 is not to be right with God. It's, it's a response to the great salvation that He's given us. So let's just spend some time as a church family respond to this salvation and worship with our whole heart. But let me pray as we respond to worship. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for being our friend. Thank you for conquering death. Thank you for being the one who's living, the first and the last, who died, who rose again, who holds the keys of life and death. Thank you for being the glorious, everlasting God, Prince of Peace, glorious Savior. And we just want to respond with worship in Jesus' name.